When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to another Books of the Year podcast from your very good friends at Books of the Year, the podcast. I kind of think we've just say, been saying we're your friends for a while. Yeah. We so should I, go something else, you think? Well, I think very good friends. Very, so, okay. <laughs> so, so... I want to imply more commitment. So is this in the same ballpark as really, really enjoyed when yes. we do our Q&A? Otherwise, so. it just sounds like a casual relationship. Oh, right. Yeah, well, we have been here for a while, you know. Yes. So we're your... Maybe we're your best friends. Yes. Your best friends at Books of the Year. Your podcast is your best friend. An email from Ashley, uh, to, who wrote to Books of the Year at yahoo.com. Dear A to Z, uh, love, the, love the pod. I've recently enjoyed your chats with Steve Kavanagh and Adele Parks. A recent debate with my other half has led me to write to you with a bookish question. Ah. Is it okay to give signed books to a charity shop? I don't mean just signed and dated. I mean signed to a specific person, mm. i.e. me says Ashley. I have had the annual autumn clear out and put aside a stack of books for the charity shop, many of which were signed by some of the authors I've met over the years at events and festivals. Well, you should have seen the face of my husband. It was <laughs> like I'd committed a crime. You can't get rid of those. They're signed. Yeah. He says. So the debate went back and forth for a while and I will not bore you with more details. Suffice to say, I took them to the charity shop and they seemed happy enough. So my question is, is this okay? Or are you on my husband's side? Keep up the good work, says Ashley in Exeter. I, it, it, is, it is a problem. I think it, if, it's signed, if it says to Matt, yeah. love whoever. Ian Rankin, yeah. Love Ian Rankin. I think that would feel odd. And I would... I, see, I tend to only get books signed if I really, really yes like them yeah so i would tend not to be passing them on but if i'm a bit casual like ashley in oh go on then sign it <laughs> then you can always incise the page out with yes. a sharp knife yeah what do you think I, I have to say if i were in a charity shop and i came across a book that was that said to simon or to, to someone else uh hope you love the book love charles Dickens. love love william shakespeare i would be secretly thrilled in fact, I'd probably want to buy that book more if it had that inscription on, okay. the, on the front. It's a bit like when you buy those um, sort of antique postcards and they've got, you know, we've just had a lovely time in Bridlington uh, on the on the back of them. So, yeah, no, I, I, I think I'd, I'd, I'd prefer to pick up a book like that in a, in a charity shop. Uh, so, Ashley, we're on your side, I think. Yes, yes, we uh, are. Basically. Um, this from Raj on Twitter, uh, who en 
enjoyed our chat with Louise Doughty uh, a month or so ago. I love how you both quoted your favourite pages from A Bird in Winter during your chat with Louise Doughty. It's great when interviewers have actually read the book. Imagine that. Interviewers actually having read the book. I know, what a thing. Uh, Do you often circle quotes in books or make a note of them in a journal or some such? Um, I I, I write in the book. Yeah, I write in it. I do a little squiggle. I don't do a circle. I do a squiggle on the sort of, uh, on the, in the margin. When when I find something I really like. I just circle it. um, Circling it feels uh, a little wrong, whereas doing the little squiggle... A uh, little, little squiggle. Writing in books makes me feel like I'm an intellectual. Yeah, does it? Yeah, that's right. It makes me. And if you do that whilst on public transport. Oh yes, no, that is. Wow, great. look at him. Yeah, He's got a pen yeah, out. No, no, I do enjoy that. I do enjoy the look I get when I go. Oh yes, going to write my little squiggle. Here. Librarians, of course, will be horrified. Yes. Yes. Obviously you can't write in someone else's book. No, no, no. But then I can take that book to the charity shop, and someone like me will be secretly thrilled. That is true. Uh, remember, if you'd like to get in touch. Tell us what you think. Email anytime books of the year at yahoo.com. We're on Twitter at Books of the Year and Instagram and threads at Pick Any Page. Right, let's talk with our best selling author, top screenwriter, and top author, indeed, Terry Hayes. Terry Hayes. Uh, has joined us. His new book is The Year of the Locust. Hello, Terry, by the way. Good morning. Very nice to uh, very nice to see you this time because the last time we spoke, you were... Where were you? I was in a place called Ultimo in Sydney at 4am in the morning and it's in an industrial area, so there was nobody around. It's not sort of dangerous, but it's right in the centre of Sydney. It's very lonely and very creepy. So I went down to the ABC studios, and being a government institution, they didn't care whether I was there or not. Oh, yeah, go up floor four. And I sat there and I talked to you. And then we had a remarkable evening. We went home. My wife went on Amazon. I was talking to the head of the publishing house who said you did a good job, which, of course, I didn't believe him. And uh, my wife said, come and look at this. Come and look at this. I said, I'm on the phone with somebody important. She said, you've got to look at this. So I walked over and she was on Amazon. And we saw it go from out somewhere beyond Pluto, the book, you know, yeah. like it was 1,760,000. And we watched it go to number one. Wow. And that was wow. you. Wow. Okay. There well, you go. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> Incredible. So, so you owe me, kind of. <laughs> I, I owe you a lot. I, 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 which I, which I, book was that? Which that was I Am Pilgrim. I Am Pilgrim. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So that was a long time ago. It was a very long time ago. But that was your last book. That was true. So uh, now the book we're, we're about to talk about is is a monster. But uh, was it wasn't this due like in twenty sixteen or something? Oh, I think earlier. Okay, <laughs> I, I think I'm eight to nine years late. Uh, wow, I mean, <laughs> there's missing a deadline, and then there's missing a deadline. So why why so long? Um, the uh, a couple of months ago, the Washington Post had a really great article about an author called Dean Kuntz. Yeah. And he, he's written 109 books. And that is an incredible achievement. I, I don't care what anybody says. I, to write 109 books, uh, I take my hat off to him. Uh, and, you know, and I, I'm not disparaging it at all. I have not read his books. But 
On the other hand, J.R.R. Tolkien wrote two books, The Lord of the Rings Trilogy and The Hobbit. So we all have a choice, don't we? You can be Dean Kuntz or you can be J.R.R. Tolkien. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so this is J.R.R. Hayes. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, without the talent. <laughs> originally from Sussex, we should yes. say. Yes. Uh, before before uh, moving to Australia. And this is just where before, this is all worth it as preamble i think just to say that for many many years you were uh, you were a, you know you i think you were an investigative journalist yes yes and you were a producer and yes. you were a screenwriter yes a mad max 2 yes mad max beyond thunderdome yes dead calm yes and so on you wrote those yes i did so what was the what was the switch to what what made you switch to writing a novel um i'd always wanted to be a novelist i thought that was real writing but I was working actually as a radio producer and a guy called George Miller came, arranged to meet me because I'd had, I'd been a foreign correspondent and a number of other things and I had quite a, you know, bit of a reputation as a journalist. So he arranged to meet me. He'd read Pauline Kael's book in which she said the best screenwriters are former journalists uh, because they've got a different attitude to things. So he took that at face value and he came to meet me and he said, I made a movie called Mad Max. I said, oh yeah. He said, do you want to see it? I said, sure. So we went and watched this movie on a 20-inch TV screen in black and white with many, many scenes missing. I did not understand one thing about the story. And then he told me he was a doctor. And I thought, who gives up a good job to go and direct a movie that's incomprehensible? <laughs> so obviously he was a very interesting man. I came to like him enormously. So he set off on a journey. He said, we'll write this. And that, and it eventually became Road Warrior, Mad Max 2. But halfway through, I said to him, George, how do I get paid for this? He said, oh, well, $25,000 is what you get. I said, oh, yeah. I was earning four times that. And I thought, well, I don't know about this movie stuff. And he said, but remember, you only get the 25000 if the movie's made. If it's not made, I said, well, what do I get then? He said, oh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Really? <laughs> really. Okay. He, well, he had no money. He was going around absolutely terribly fatigued in his little car going around doing locum work. People who couldn't get to the hospital at th or the doctor at 3 a.m., he'd go and see them. And that, so he was just, he was living on the smell of an oily rag. So they had no money to pay me. But I, I thought it was a great opportunity. Yeah. It worked out okay for both of you. Well, especially for him, a couple of Academy Award nominations. Yeah, we did some work that I think is worthy of being proud of. So the new book uh, is, which is late, obviously, um, <laughs> but, but worth waiting for, uh, is, is The Year of the Locust. What is, I, normally I would get Matt to describe the cover, but we haven't got a cover. Um, what Matt has, just explain, Matt, what you've got in front I, of it, I mean, it'd be very easy to explain my cover. It's white with, in very, very, very fine print at the top, the year of the locust half cut. I think that says, oh, no, half title, half title. <laughs> drop, drop, it, it, drop it on the, so on the table. Okay. Yeah. That's what Matt's yeah. got. I've got um, a sampler, or which is basically uh, the first part of the book is book one. Is this going to be the cover? Of that the... is the cover. Okay. Yeah. This is the cover. Okay, okay. So now Matt can describe the cover. Okay. So, but I, I'm going to guess those are a locust. Uh, it's a close-up of a locust's wings, um, and we've got a sort of rainbow of colours going through them, from ultraviolet to to red to green and blue at the top, and it's against a black background, and then picked out in white, the year of the locust in big bold white letters, Terry Hayes's name at the bottom. There you go. So what is 
the year of the locust. Well, it's it's basically a story about a hunt for a man who wishes or ends up doing enormous harm to the world. So it's a spy, a person who comes from a certain division called Denied Access Area Spies. These are the real guys and women. These are the people that go into North Korea. These are the people that go into Iran. These are the people that will go into Zato's, the forbidden areas within the old Soviet Union. So he's one of these. The And so his job is to hunt a man who they identify. I hope I'm not stepping on the plot here, but they identify because he has the most remarkable locust tattoo on his back. And so the story really is the year-long hunt for this man who they only know by a pseudonym and they believe they had killed five or six years beforehand. The CIA were convinced they'd killed him, but now he comes back from the dead and they never killed him at all. And he wishes or ends up doing an enormous amount of harm to the world. So, you know, we go into the badlands where Afghanistan meets Pakistan, um, meets Iran. He crosses the border into Iran. And... Who is this guy? His name is Kane. That's not his real name, but that's the name that he's known under, and I'd rather not say what his real name... Well, I can say it. His real name is Ridley Walker. Ridley Walker was a wonderful book written by Russell Hoban, and this is Terry's tip of the hat to Mr. Hoban, who I, I thought wrote a truly brilliant book. And, uh, and that's so he... Unlike Pilgrim, Pilgrim was a, an intellectual exercise in tracking down the Saracen. I decided to do something very different, and that was to put my lead character into jeopardy all the time. He's always being hunted. He's always getting himself into situations. You think, how is he ever going to get out of this? But I also gave him a wife who turned out to be pregnant with twins, so there's an emotional bond. Gore, Gore Vidal once said that all great drama happens within families. And you get, I, I think there's some truth to that because you get a lot of a lot of emotion for very little cost. Because, you know, if, if two people are apparently in love, they'll go that extra yard. And that's so, yeah, she spent, she's a doctor, very good character, I believe. Others will make their own judgment, and uh, and that and she spends her whole life worried about whether he's coming back alive, and that and of course she doesn't want him to do it, but she comes to a point where she does understand what the danger is, not to but to the world at large, and she does a great thing. She says, "Go, go, do it, and come back," and so he does it. So. Terry, I, I, we, we've already dropped the book on the table, mm. to, and so people will have an idea that this is a this is a weighty tome. Now, yes. I have to say, when 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 the postman delivered this uh, to my house, yeah. he had to go to the hospital. I, I I showed the book. I said, "This is the next book that I said to my wife. This is the next book we're doing on the podcast." And she was like, "Oh my goodness, look at the size of that thing!" Yeah. But as daunting as it looked when I first picked it up, I raced through this, and I think. I mean, obviously, that's that's testament to your writing. 
I, but I wonder as well whether it's the, the the chapters are really nice and short. You get you feel you're 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 going through it at a rate of knots. And my I wonder whether because you must have known when you were starting, I am writing an epic here because yes. it's definitely an epic. But I want to be me- I want to make sure that I'm not putting people off. And so the way I'm going to draw them in. How, what were you thinking? We, we, was short chapters part of your thinking? Now, y- yes, it has to be because you know uh, nobody wants to sit down and read two hundred and fifty. 50,000 words in one sitting. Well, nobody outside of a mental home, I guess. <laughs> and that, so you, and my, my method of approaching it is every paragraph has to make you want to read it. Every paragraph. And when you can get 10 paragraphs together, that means you're going to have a page that you must read. So you've got to get into it. You've got to make it dramatic. And yes, there's 250,000 words in it. I wrote one million. You wrote a million? Mm-hmm. It's on my computer. So this is a quarter of the book that you... Well, yeah, well I, I threw all the rest away. Oh. You know, Bob Dylan says a great thing. He says, you've got to write a hundred songs to find one good one. And that, it took a long time. So, <laughs> so when you handed it in, obviously late, uh, <laughs> did... Uh, I know your editor, uh, Bill, because he's my editor as well. Right. So, but when... I, when I, when I hand him, I feel very inadequate, really. If I hand him a book, it's like 120,000, and he'll yeah. say, can we lose 10,000 or something mm-hmm. like that. If you'd already got rid of three quarters of a million words, <laughs> what, did he, what, what did he say? Oh, he was just so relieved to get it. I, I mean, this was my strategy. <laughs> he, he, was, he fell on his knees and said, thank God, it's being delivered. I don't think he, he was um, in the business of being too critical. But then I received all of his notes in the margin. And I can tell you, I can tell both of you, I have never been so insulted in all my life. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> because... Well, I go over the top. You know, I think if in doubt, go for it. Really go for it. Try it out and see when you read it through if it works. So self-censorship is a bad thing in my view. So I go over the top. So the first memorable comment was, I I would lose this if I was you. I think it's a little cheesy. I thought, well, that's a bit harsh. Then he dispensed with the politeness. Every, you know, 100 pages or however often, he'd just write, cheesy, exclamation (laughs) marks. He didn't need to say any more. So I got the message, but that was really important. You know, you need somebody to moderate my excessive behaviour. So you... Did you make a, de- a definite decision to write big and to write long, or yeah. is that just what you do? It's just what I do. I mean, you, you write a movie, it's 120 pages, 140 pages. It, it's spare and lean, and I, people only read the dialogue anyway. And to me, that's not really writing. I mean, movies are a director's medium and and that. But I'd always wanted to be a writer, so I always tried to craft the movies into really good narrative. People say, oh, you know, uh, movies are like poetry, you know, maximum amount of meaning, minimum amount of words. That's not really true. Movies are shallow. Not all movies. Most movies are very shallow. But you get to a movie like Oppenheimer and that is not shallow. But boy, is that rare. 
and that. So when I decided to give up my Hollywood career and do what I'd always wanted to do, which was write novels, well, you know, you'd let the bull loose in the china shop, hadn't you? I mean, I, it was no more 120 pages. It was, my God, why not 600 pages? <laughs> and that. So, so I went for it. I, I went for it. We have, uh, Matt and I, uh, have, sometimes our observations are smart and decent, you know, we, and we get it right. And sometimes we get it completely wrong. So we had um, uh, an author on... Uh, T.J. Newman, who yes. written this book about uh, a, an air, air, air crash, and it's got a big dramatic photograph of an aeroplane crashing, you know, coming vertically down the uh, down the page. And we were both convinced because we'd marked up the book in the same way that we got to a bit of thinking this is fantastic research. And T.J. Newman used to be an air steward, right? Mm -hmm. Air stewardess. So what were and what were the buttons? So she said there were buttons in, in the book. She said there were buttons in the cabin called the "Help Me Jesus" buttons, which are basically the buttons to the pilot. To the pilot, which is everything else has gone wrong. And the buttons are, are positioned above your head, so they are the literally the "Help Me Jesus" buttons. Right, right. and we both thought that's they definitely exist. That's someone who's been there and who knows all about it. And, and she said, "No, I just made that up." Mm. Good on her. So, based on that, uh, there are a couple of moments where I'm thinking, either you are remarkably well informed, or you've you're a great writer and you just made it up. So, for example, this is quite early on, so I think I can ask you, tell me about our hero's eyes, mm. because there are there is, according to your book, incredible technology which can basically change someone's eyes. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I'm remarkably well informed. <laughs> yeah. But, of course, that's a lie as well. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did one really smart thing in the book, probably the only smart thing I did. I put at the front the day after tomorrow because I am sick to death of people on Amazon who read the book with Google open next to mm -hmm. them and then say, oh, you got this wrong. Oh, you were wrong here. So I thought, I'm going to put the day after tomorrow and nobody can argue that technology does not exist. But who's to say? Uh. Next week it might exist. So it became a very convenient thing. Um Obviously, you can't use contacts because they would find those in a moment when they're examining you. So they're prosthetics over the eyes and uh, that. Can you do that to a person's eyes? I doubt it. But then again, look at all the other stuff that we do. I mean, I remember when a fax machine was, was a miracle. <laughs> we haven't seen a fax machine lately. There's more computing power in in our cell phones than there is on the Voyager that went to the edge of our solar system. So the developments are so fast now, future shock, you know, and that. So I thought, well, I've got a narrative problem and uh, I'm going to solve it. So I did. <laughs> so I would say that speaks to your talent as a writer because there were a number of points in the book where I was like, I d does this exist? Does it not exist? Uh, cloaking missiles, does that work? Does it not work? Sushi bombs. Tell us, just tell us briefly what a sushi bomb is because I love the sushi bomb. Yeah, the sushi bomb's great. That's the evolution of the ninja bomb. The ninja bomb exists. The, nin the ninja bomb exists? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they've used it like, I think, 14 times. The problem that the, the, the Pentagon and the CIA have is that when you blow up or missile people in a car, there's a lot of collateral damage. I think the kill zone's like 60 metres around the explosion. And, that, and you know, 
people get annoyed that they're in the marketplace in, you know, some dreadful place in Afghanistan. All of a sudden, people are dead everywhere. So they developed the, the, the Ninja Bomb, which deploys these long knives. It doesn't explode. It, the the power of, of, of the, the missile carrying it takes it into the car. The Once impact is is you know, experienced, the knives, these long knives deploy. It's like a magic ball and it spins and it cuts to pieces everybody in the car. Now, this has been done. So that was the ninja bomb. So I decided to make it even more deadly and called it the sushi bomb so that all the people in America at Fort Derrick or wherever they develop these things will say, my God, good on him. He's a hot tip to us for the ninja bomb and he's developed it even further. How can it be more deadly than being eviscerated? <laughs> Simon, I don't know. I think I made the knives longer and more of them, you know. Um, and that's so, so, yeah, one of the great things about writing about the CIA or leading edge research in, in, in with the Pentagon, and you spoke about cloaking technology. That is the hottest thing in military science at the moment. Cloaking technology is really being developed, and that's Harry Potter's cloak of invisibility. It's stealth on steroids. So, but the great thing about it is, they'll deny it. And everybody will say, oh, well, yes, of course I'll deny it. No, he's right. Terry's right. No, no. That's how good he is. <laughs> you can't lose, basically. You can't yeah. lose. Yeah. Yeah. So whether we're talking about the 250,000-word book which you've ended up with or the million words which you, which you originally wrote, do you, do you plot meticulously, Terry, or do you just in, go, for, go for the ride and, and see where it takes you? I've got to know the ending. I, I, I've got to know the ending. So I knew right at the beginning, that the last words of Pilgrim will be, he is risen, you know, the, a reference to a biblical quote. And I knew the last words of Locust would be riders on the storm. That's all we are and can ever hope to be, riders on the storm. Well, of course, that's partly the Doors song um, and that, but it summed up <clears throat> the journey that he'd been on. So I have to know that. I have to know where I'm going. And then I look for the emotion. I look for where are the emotional axis, you know, like what's he going to feel here? Or, oh, boy, this is a great moment. If only this would happen, this is really going to, you know, go, take this to the bank. So I have these sort of milestones. But, you know, if you know all the plot, this is just my theory, if you know all the plot, you're not writing, you're typing. And that becomes really boring, and that's, uh, I like to sort of keep it relatively loose. And it's wonderful. You get yourself into a corner and you think, how am I ever going to get out of this? And then you go to bed and you wake up. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes you've had a good idea. It's under the stress of being a failure. You know, when, when you've got, let's say, 100,000 words written and you've ditched, you know, another 400,000 because they're just no good or you hated those scenes or you, oh, all of this stuff. When you've got 100,000 words written that you're happy with, boy, you better find the solution. You If you've got yourself into a corner, you better work a way out of this because that would be devastating uh, to have to throw away the next 100,000. So, so yeah, I, I, I put myself through it, you know. 
I'm, I'm intrigued, Terry, as to the decision you take um, about which bits to delve into and which bits not. Right, so I'm going to give you two examples. And by the way, if you're listening and you're eating, maybe put off the eating for about 20 <laughs> seconds or so whilst I describe what, you, what, you've, what you've put us through in this book. Um, there are two sequences. One, there is a torture sequence, which, uh, as I was reading it, I was getting really uncomfortable and I was massively relieved when you decided to take us out of that room. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're basically, a character is relaying to our to our hero what has happened in that room, but we come out of the room and I was very relieved. There is another sequence just before that where our hero has been shot in the foot and realises he needs to disinfect the wound. And to disinfect the wound, yes. he lets the flies onto the wound so that they will lay maggots so that they will cleanse the wound. And I, I thought to myself, so we're being taken out of the room with the torture going on, but we're right there when the maggots are digging into his foot. And so I, I just want to know your, your, thought, your thought process of when are we going to be in the room, when are we not? Oh, well, you're always in the room. Um, I was in the room for the tongue removal scene. Um and I, boy, did I go to town. <laughs> and the dear editor called me up and said, well, I think most people are going to stop about now. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you think so? He said, yeah. I said, well, you know, it's only a book. It's not real. He said, yeah, but that's the problem, isn't it? People will think it's real if you've done your job properly. So, yes, I did not make that decision. It was the right decision to to cut away from that and and not put everybody through it. There is a wolf attack uh, right at the outset of the book, which was so horrendous. I mean, being chained to a tree and the wolf pack arriving in the Siberian wilderness is not my idea of a vacation. And I, even I thought, this is too much. This is way too much. I I mean, you know, how many teeth does a wolf have? How do they really attack? All the research I did, I'm thinking, oh, boy, this is interesting. I put it in, and then I thought, no, I don't think we'll do that. So that went out. Um, The maggots, I'd always found that interesting because that was a way that people disinfected wounds. There is much later in the book a scene where, where our hero Kane gets wounded very badly in the shoulder and they're on a submarine and he tells a person that he's in the company of to go to the women's bunks, find tampons and sanitary pads. And what you do on the battlefield when you get a, a, a large wound you have to pack the wound really deep to stop the flesh and the blood vessels collapsing in on themselves. Well, tampons, of course, expand. And he knew this. How did I know that? Because that was what I read about the Ukraine war. They were teaching the soldiers. A woman, a medic, was telling the soldiers, do this, use sanitary pads because they're clean, bind it with that. So, it's yeah, there's a lot of horrific stuff in them. You need to exercise good taste. I clearly don't have that, (laughs) but I have an editor who does. But do you, in a way, you have to earn the right to be able to be that vicious? Exactly, Simon. Yeah, you you earn the right to do it. You take people on the journey. Otherwise, it just becomes gratuitous. 
There's another um, part I just want to read quickly to you that um, is, is 400, page 460, if you're following it. Oh, we're about and a quarter is, through. We are, yes. <laughs> not, not even halfway part through. One. Um, uh, and you're talking about the world of spies and you're talking about why... Uh, what, what personalities are best suited mm -hmm. to the world of spies? And Falcon, who is um, our hero's boss, um, shrugs and says, that's why those of us in the secret world can adopt legends so easily. We're used to wearing someone else's clothes. And I underline that because I thought, actually, I think Terry has hit a nail on a head here. Um, but just just talk to me about that, that you're thinking about what makes the kind of people who enter these secret uh, organisations who they are oh that that they are mostly yeah no i'm not talking of the analysts i'm not talking of the people who sit around in, in in you know langley and and analyze you know shipping movements i'm talking about people that go over the borders or the, or the people that you know go and interrogate people at black prisons these are not normal people that, that they really aren't and you read enough about it and you come to realize They've nearly all got secrets themselves, so they know. They know how to mask everything. And, you know, so if you go back into the history of the CIA, if you were homosexual, that was the last thing that, that they... Because you were, you were open to blackmail and all of these things. It didn't stop homosexuals from joining the CIA, but, boy, did it teach them how to keep secrets, alcoholics, people with mistresses, people with gambling addictions, on and on and on. So from a very early age, a lot of them have learned to create a public face and that was perfect for the CIA. There was a, uh, there was a, a sentence that I underlined. Uh, I think it's page eighty three. So you know, <laughs> barely anything. Yeah. It's like the Opening introduction. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, okay, that's just, it's it's really a throwaway comment, Terry. Really, mm -hmm. but it's I'm like I was thinking, okay, this is what Terry thinks, but it's quite a neat way of talking about it you just say um being famous on social media is a bit like being rich in monopoly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. so where did so where did that come from was that did that just happen at the time or, or had you thought about that i i i'd thought about it or i'd read about it i'm i'm not sure but you know I, i've got four kids the oldest is 22 and the youngest is 16 and uh you know, they've done most of their education online. So they know more about TikTok. That's online education in the modern world, as far as I can see. Your kids sit around and watch TikTok. And that, and they're always going on about people on social media. You know, so-and-so, look at this guy. He's got 46 supercars. And I say, no, he hasn't. That is not true. He is photographed in a garage where there are 46 supercars. We have no proof of anything. So I'm I'm really irritated by most things on social media. I, I, I really am. I, and most of it seems to me to be very dishonest and that. So I'm sitting around and I'm thinking, you know, this is crap. <laughs> social media stuff and I tried to find or remember and I, God knows, you know, I have so much research, some line that would be funny when when our hero meets the woman that would become his 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 wife, and uh, so I I tried to think up something where she would think, "Gee, that's bold," and the reader would think, "Hey, he sounds he he sounds like he's interesting." So it fulfilled a lot of functions, you know. Uh, 
I, I thought it was relatively amusing, it made me smile, and that, and uh, I think it, it was very good for the two characters. Yeah. Um, when it comes to adapting your work for the screen, when it then becomes shallow, uh, in your words, or shallow, <laughs> uh, I mean, you're obviously the place to go. This is what because that's what you did. You have been a screenwriter. Obviously, you're going to be the person. Uh, to adapt it. And I think I Am Pilgrim was going to be, maybe still is, maybe it's about to be. Are you the person that, w if anyone adapts your work, it'll be you? Or are you happy to hand it over? I have no choice. I, I mean, it's not whether I'm happy or not. Um, I sell the rights to the book, to a studio, which is exactly what happened with I Am Pilgrim. I sell the rights and as part of that deal, I'm given the opportunity to write the screenplay if I wish, but then they can go and do whatever they want. So I wrote a screenplay of I Am Pilgrim, which I thought was a good screenplay. Very difficult thing to do, to distill that book down into a into a much more smaller number of pages. And and I was working with a director and he and I were going to go through the process of, of crafting it up even more. And then he couldn't make a deal with the studio. It was Matthew Vaughan who, who did, um, you know, lay a cake yeah. and, and uh, Kingsman and that. And he couldn't make a deal. So that was the end of that, his involvement. They decided to get a new screenwriter in. Oh, it's fine. You know, uh, they can do that. They have the right. There's no point in me uh, railing against them. So this, I was at our house in New Zealand and walking around the acreage, you know, and uh, I get a call from this guy and he says, well, look, it's a relatively simple job. It's all in the book. It's just a matter of distilling it down. And I thought, then you don't know the first thing you're talking about. Anybody that tells me writing a screenplay is a relatively simple job is obviously not trying very hard. And that, so anyway, he went south. They then got in a new guy uh, who'd written a, a pretty good movie, but Clint Eastwood had directed it, and I figured the director really made that movie. He wrote a screenplay that I told the studio if they went out to make that screenplay, I'd do a Tom Clancy on them. I would have no hesitation in going out there and saying, don't go and see this movie. I wrote the book. This is appalling. I could not believe, you know... There's a lot of bad people in Hollywood. And uh, he changed the names of all the characters. Why? Because you have to go to an arbitration to see who gets the credit on the movie. The credit's worth a lot of money because you get residuals. He figured changing the names would make the people in arbitration think, oh, he's invented new characters. And that I was really angry. So that went south. Then MGM got sold to Amazon. A very senior executive at MGM told me that he loved Pilgrim, absolutely loved it. And I said, oh, that's great. That's good. Yeah, you guys bought it. I'm glad you love it. He said, well, you know why I love it? He said, because I am that character. I said, oh, really? I said, well, gee, that's interesting. I said, because, you know, my wife said, you're that character. Terry's that character. And I said, oh, I don't go around killing people. And she said, no, but it's your sense of humour. It's, it's your moral sort of uh, uncertainty about everything. 
she said, it's it's you. She said, I read it and I know it's you. But apparently not. Apparently it's a senior <laughs> film executive in, in in Hollywood. And that, and I thought, you know, I'm really dealing with lunatics here. <laughs> I'm dealing with complete lunatics. Then <clears throat> MGM get taken over by Amazon. They have decided they are going to go and make this movie and they've got a big movie star who wants to do it, who I, who I talked to at great length and... I was very surprised at how intelligent he was and, and the insights that he had into the book. So that's encouraging, but they've got to find a director and who knows. You so know. It's, still, it's still possible? Oh I, th- oh, I think it would definitely happen. At some oh, 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 yes, definitely. With, the, with that intelligent actor? Well, what happens is in about nine months' time, the rights to the book come back to me. I own them again and I can do whatever I like with them. And so I had a long meeting, a Zoom meeting with all the executives at Amazon and MGM and they said, oh, look, you know, we're going to make this and these are the people involved. It's going to be a great movie. I said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure, 30 years, 40 years in Hollywood. I have heard that before. And that. so they said, no, no, it's real. So what they wanted me to do was to cut them a deal, to give them an extension to get it, to get it made. And they said, you know, this is the wise thing to do. I said, no, not really. The wise thing to do is to do nothing. And they said, well, it may never be made. I said, sure, it's fine with me. I wrote the novel. I'm proud of it. And that I said, and maybe my kids will sell it one day. And maybe they won't. We'll see. And that so... That's where it stands. They thanked me for my candor. They said, it's most unusual in Hollywood to have such candor from somebody. And I said, you know what? I don't care anymore. I, you have nothing that I want because I have a career as a novelist and I'm very happy. So, so everything is taking a while, but might there be another book from you? I'm asking this on behalf of your publisher. <laughs> yes, they, they asked me that last night at dinner. Yes, I'm contracted to do Pilgrim 2, which also had many hundreds of thousands of words, which were not included in the first one. And I do have a great plot for it. And that so it brings back a lot of the characters who were well loved by some people on Amazon, not everybody, um, and that, but uh, all good reads. But uh, yes, so I'm doing Pilgrim 2. Uh, and the publishers, who, who are not actually very nice people, they, they come across very sophisticated and urbane and decent, but they put in the contract that if I don't deliver on certain dates, I have to pay large financial penalties. So I now have this incentive. Do we eat or do I finish the book? <laughs> right. Okay. So it won't be another 15 years. Before. Oh, God, no. Okay. Oh, well, I'll be dead. <laughs> uh, Terry Hayes' book is The Year of the Locust. Uh, there's going to be another uh, chat with Terry on our Q&A along in a couple of days' time, but Terry... For the moment, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the aging process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford, and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.